there is just not enough Wagovi. But even if Novo Nordisk were to manufacture an enormous surplus of Wagovi, millions more will never get it. Whether due to short-sightedness or seeing obesity as a choice rather than a disease, many insurance companies outright deny coverage of medications for weight loss. As an endocrinologist at an academic medical center who specializes in treating metabolic diseases, including obesity and type 2 diabetes, I try to give all my patients the best possible care against these obstacles. But medical weight management has become an endurance sport for my patients and me. That was Jody Duchet, an endocrinologist at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. She's also the founder and director of WellPowered, a comprehensive wellness and weight management program. She was reading from her recent first opinion essay on how the shortage of drugs like Wagovi and Ozempic is forcing her to make difficult decisions for and with her patients. After our break, we'll discuss the rise of GLP-1s and what they mean for physicians and patients alike, and we'll also talk to one of her patients, Lori Bruner. Right now, millions of Americans are making important decisions about their healthcare coverage for next year. United Healthcare offers a couple tips to help you during this open enrollment period. First, don't overlook specialty benefits like dental, vision, hearing, or wellness programs. Many health plans now offer incentives for exercising or for not smoking, and many Medicare Advantage plans offer gym memberships at no extra cost. Second, check your prescription benefits. Filling prescriptions at a participating network pharmacy or with home delivery may help you manage costs and get the most from your prescription coverage. For more tips, visit UHC openenrollment.com. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Tori Bosch, editor of First Opinion. First Opinion is Stat's platform for interesting, illuminating, and provocative articles about the life sciences writ large, written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others. Welcome, Jody and Lori. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Jody. I want to start with you. Um, how long have you been in weight management as a field? And what was it like before the new generation of drugs like Wagovi? I finished my fellowship in 2008. And my clinical practice focused on mostly type 2 diabetes and medical, metabolic complications of diabetes. Then over time, I started to see more patients for weight management. And my practice evolved pretty quickly. I would say over after about three years, as I think as soon as word got out that I was seeing patients for medical weight management, I got more referrals. And then as additional therapeutics became available, I got additional patients. I did do my research as a fellow on weight loss with actually the first in-class GLP-1 agonist called Exenatide. And I was looking at women without diabetes and their weight loss responses to Exenatide. So from there, I my clinical practice followed my research. There were some other medications that were similarly used off-label, but when I started, there was just Exenatide and then that field grew, but it was very unconventional. I mean, really unheard of to use Exenatide for weight loss without diabetes originally. It was approved for type 2 diabetes and it was th- that was not the indication. So um, 
The landscape has changed dramatically at an accelerated pace since other GLP-1s have entered this class. And what's the difference between those drugs and what we're seeing today? A major difference is duration of action. So exenatide was, as I said, first in class, and that was a twice-daily medication. There were two different doses, but it was either 5 milligrams taken twice a day or 10 milligrams taken twice a day. And then from there, it was novel uh, that loraglutide was approved that was once daily, which was thought to be you know, pretty amazing. Uh, and then from there... The, the weekly formulations. So um, it really went from uh, it, a major change was in terms of how often you had to take this medication. And at first, when the weeklies were available, there was this idea that, well, would it, would it work as well? And so just to be clear, all of these drugs generally are injectables. Is that correct? There is one oral, which is an oral semaglutide. You don't hear that much about it. The trade name is Ribelsis, and it's an, it is an oral semaglutide that is dosed once daily. There are other, there is another strength of oral semaglutide that is under active research right now, but otherwise they are all injected. Uh, great. And when did you start realizing that um, things were changing, that there is all this hype around Wagovi, Ozempic, and how did it change your practice? Several things happened at once, including, well, the approval of Wagovi, of course, and then social media, and then shortages. And then with the shortages, in addition to causing a lot of frustration with not being able to get it, it also increased demand. So there were shortages and then there was more demand. And then so that was, I think, the first inflection point was the first round of shortages, uh, which you know, coincided, um, not surprisingly, with a lot of the attention it was getting in the lay press and in social media. And now, Lori, I'd like to bring you in. Um how did you first uh, interact with Jody? This probably takes a little bit of explaining. I have a long history with the bariatric program. Um, I had uh, lap band surgery done in 2004. And it was uh, initially quite successful. Um, I had lost about 100 pounds. And uh, I was doing well for a while. And eventually, uh, weight started to creep back on over the years, especially when I went through several years of some profound stress. Things sort of came to a head. I want to say it was about a year and a half ago to two years ago. I was I was having a lot of issues with um, the feeling of globus sensation which is that feeling that you've got a lump in your throat that that won't go away. And it turned out that that had a lot to do with uh, uh, acid reflux. And so I went through a bunch of testing. Uh, I did a GI series. They said, wow, your band is really, really tight. Um, we need to take the fluid out. So they did that. And that alleviated the very... It's like unbelievably awful <laughs> reflux. Um, I mean, I was waking up having aspirated acid in my sleep. It was really terrible. That, though, sort of put me on a path toward thinking about whether I needed to consider taking the band out and what I was going to do 
in the event that this came to pass. So while I was trying to figure things out, there was other stuff going on. I was uh, diagnosed with breast cancer in uh, December of 2018. I went through uh, four months of chemotherapy and 30 rounds of radiation in 2019, uh, developed lymphedema uh, shortly afterward. Um, and I've also been in a trial of uh, Kiskali at uh, Mass General during that time. So there's there's been a lot that's been happening for me medically. Um, I was forced into menopause uh, by chemo and then by uh, further by uh, you know endocrine therapy. Uh, I've been on ovarian inhibitors and uh, aromatase inhibitors, and that makes you gain weight. I mean, there's really, I think, no way around that. So I kind of at first just decided that whatever, I was grateful to be alive. This is my life. I'm not going to sweat it too much. But then I found out that there was uh, the possibility of having my lymphedema addressed also at Beth Israel. Um, and so I got myself referred there and started trying to get considered for the surgery, only to find that there is a BMI cutoff. And I was above that. And the BMI cutoff is 35. I thought, okay, well... I need to try to start losing some weight. I mean, I wouldn't mind losing some weight to get back further, you know, to where I had gotten years ago. But after everything I'd been through, my body was just not having it. <laughs> I think that it had just been through so much and it was just like, nope, we're done. Not, not taking any more changes from you. We need stability. Here it is. So that was really frustrating. Um, that was when I thought, well, maybe it's time to consider medication. And that was when uh, that was when I started seeing Jody. When you started seeing Jody, had you heard about this new sort of generation of weight loss drugs? And um, did you and Jody have a conversation about them? I had heard about them. Um, I actually first heard about them from my PCP who suggested um, that there, there were a couple of options that I could try for medication, one being uh, something like Wagovi and the other being the, um, the combination of fentramine and, uh, and topiramate. So that when I came to see Jody, we talked about those. Well, I don't want to pry too much. Can you tell me a little bit about what those conversations were like? And, and Jody, I'd be interested to hear from you um, after Lori tells us. I'm, I'm I'm just curious how the conversations go, what some of the considerations were as you discussed them. Mm. Well, you know, I, I I went in and I I told her my my long story <laughs> about how how I came to be in her office, and um, she agreed that. Uh, Medication might help me get to a point where I could be eligible for this surgery. And so we talked about the, the different kinds of uh, side effects for each type of drug. 
And, you know, I kind of took a little time to read them on my own and think about, okay, which side effect profile can I live with more? <laughs> uh, I was a little nervous about the idea of injections at, at first, but I thought, well, you know, I can probably live with it. I've certainly been through worse. So, um, so that's how I ended up deciding to give uh, Wagovi a try. And Jody, how do you sort of approach, um, you know, I, I assume many of your patients, like Lori, have a lot of medical needs, right? You're sort of balancing cancer treatment and other medical problems that may be, but often are not related to the person's weight. So how do you think about how to to balance that approach? Right. So Lori's case was especially interesting because it was multifaceted. There was the there was definitely the finish line of needing to reach a certain weight in order to get a procedure done, which parenthetically, um, <laughs> there have been, we've asked some questions about that, you know, in terms of, um, in terms of what motivates these, these cutoffs, which you hear, you know, sometimes orthopedists say your BMI has to be X before we'll do it, um, a knee or a hip replacement, or you need to lose you know, BMI 35 before we'll do this, um, this procedure for the lymphedema. And I trust that these are based on the physicians doing the procedures, wanting to have the best outcomes. However, um, I, I'm not entirely positive how evidence-based they are. So I think a lot of patients end up feeling very frustrated and frankly, um, stigmatized by this. So that's that. there was that whole aspect of it. So, uh, um, and of having this goal that she really had that we needed to try to get to. And then there were some complications, metabolic complications from being overweight um, that Lori had um, and were treated with other medications. Uh, so you put all that into the equation. Uh, so you're risk stratifying the obesity, and then you're also considering very important other life considerations or medical conditions that are not traditionally uh, in that bucket of metabolic comorbidities. And then you have not that many tools in the toolbox, but still you need to give people the information. And some patients come in very convinced. I want this, right? It might be, you know, I want Fentramine. I want Wagovi. I want, you know, they tell you what they want. And other patients just want to hear all the options. And so you go through them one by one and you explain the medications, you explain the side effects, you explain on average, what do the studies show in terms of weight loss? And um, from there, some patients decide right at the visit, I want to do this. Other patients say, okay, I'm going to take all that information, go home, think about it and get back to you. Um, and then you proceed from there. Already, you're having to make so many calculations based on the patient's life and medical needs and priorities. And now we've got this shortage of, of so many of these medications. You know, as you write in your first opinion essay, by trying to be thoughtful and offer personalized care, I feel like I am literally weighing one patient against another, which is just such an evocative image. So tell me a little bit about how navigating these drug shortages complicates your work with patients. So to bring it home, to bring it right home to Lori, so she started on Wagovi. And she had a good response. Within the first two months, she had a good response. Um, so green light to keep going, tolerating it okay. So uh, side effects were manageable. Response was was good. And then there was the first round of shortages. So she you know, fell right into 
into that situation. And um, so then we had to decide what to do next in terms of trying another medication. And Lori, should I, should I go on from here or do you want to, do you want to speak to, I guess maybe it would be interesting to hear from you. So all of a sudden, right, you're taking medication, you're having good response. It looks like the, you know, we're heading towards that finish line and then, oh, sorry, you can't get it anymore. Yeah, I think I was on it for about two months. Um, I had lost uh, 10 pounds to begin with. And I thought, hey, you know, this is this seems to be working all right. And um, I was on the lowest uh, starter dose. And, uh, and then there wasn't any more of it, or the next couple of titered doses. So um, I had to stop. And then those 10 pounds that I lost came creeping back, no matter what I did. So that was frustrating. It, it was it was a couple of months before we figured out what to do next. And the answer ended up being to uh, start with Saxenda and uh, start with a low dose of Saxenda, which is the daily injectable. I started doing that. And, uh, and I did that for uh, several months. I forget exactly how long. I think it may have been like four or five months. Um, and, you know, tightered up, uh, you know, a few times to get to the point at which it was a dose that was, I guess, equivalent to, um, I guess, the mid-tier dose of Wagovi. So, um, so that was the point at which uh, the, those doses were available. It was all the starter doses that were that were in shortage and and couldn't be found for you know love nor money, so um, being able to bridge over with Saxenda was definitely helpful. Though I, I did I did have some issues with the Saxenda itself, which is that I developed kind of um, an allergic reaction to to them. So every time I would inject myself a day or two later, this little sort of quarter size welt would appear in the area where I had I had injected myself. And so over the course of, say, a week, I would have you know, like seven different spots on my abdomen where I was developing like a kind of round, red, itchy plaque. And I thought, uh, this is not great, but I don't know what else to do. You know, I, I, I took antihistamines and used anti-itching creams and, and just sort of dealt with it. I was grateful to be able to switch. I mean, at any point, were you thinking, like, why am I doing this, right, when you're sort of trying to find the Wagovi and then moving to this medication that's sort of less than ideal and giving you this terrible reaction? I mean, was there any point in which you thought, like, I, I can't do this anymore? I didn't get to that point, but I did, honestly, I think, start to feel a little resentful that I'm being, in my mind, sort of forced to do this to myself in order to get access to a surgery, which I feel I should just be able to get, you know, my, so my left arm is about, well, it depends on the season, you know, it kind of shrinks in the winter and expands in the summer with the heat, but anywhere from like 40 to 50% larger by volume than my right arm. And it, it's now it's stage two lymphedema, which means that um, all the swelling that you see, it's no longer pooled lymph, it's fat hypertrophy. So it's not going away unless I have surgery. 
um, the surgery would first be uh, debulking via uh, liposuction. And then at some about a year later, they would decide whether they also need to do something like um, uh, an autotransplant of a healthy lymph node uh, from one part of your body to the affected part. So, you know, one of the things that I think is especially almost cruel um, is that if you are larger to begin with, that increases your risk of developing lymphedema. And so, you know, you feel like you're already at higher risk, you're forced to do this to save your life, and then you end up being treated with medication that makes you gain more weight, only to be told that, no, you are too fat to have this surgery, which would fix it for you. Honestly, I'm a little bitter about that. Understandably, I would say. I mean, and Jody, this is something you touched on a bit in your essay as well, which is that the stigma around weight has this really sort of complicated but impactful interplay with the shortages. Can you tell us a little bit about how you think the stigma around weight is affecting, um, you know, who can access these drugs? I do want to actually add just a couple things to to what Lori said first, which is um, she. This is a, a, an interesting case where. We used Sexenda because when we had the Wagovi shortage, we couldn't use Ozempic because it wasn't approved by insurance because it's approved only for type 2 diabetes. Same molecule, right? Taking semaglutide, making progress, doesn't have diabetes, has everything that we've just talked about, no longer, can no longer get Wagovi. You can get Ozempic at the same dose that she was taking. However, insurance, yeah, so that we, we couldn't just switch her over. So there's that whole, I mean, I know that I did talk about that, this whole complicating piece of, okay, well, you know, when, how do you decide when to prescribe Ozempic off-label? So this would have been a case where, I mean, I would have, you know, acknowledged to her that we're using off-label, but really, you know, that's about as much pause as I would take in terms of, you know, well, what does that mean for, you know, in terms of people with diabetes, maybe not getting it, this was all, you know, kind of ahead of that curve, but still, I would have had no issue with that whatsoever, right? Taking a medication, continuing on the same molecule. So there was that. And the other thing I just want to point out, and it does, it now we'll switch over to the stigma. Um, Lori had asked the surgical team, directly about the this weight cutoff and expressed to me the frustration that she just mentioned. And then I in turn followed up and sent some emails to that team asking about this. Uh, you know, what are what are the guidelines? Could I see the guidelines? How do you decide what to do? And I heard back from uh, someone on the team, not the not the surgeon, saying this is the policy, and then, you know, reached out again. And um, you know, just without making this personal with that surgeon. Uh, I want to say that this is, it's very representative to what happens, as I said before, this happens all, you know, so, so often. I mean, patients go to see doctors for, you name the condition, and everyone is told, just lose weight, right? If you just lose weight, this will, whatever it is, will get better. And so sometimes that's not necessarily true. I would say that for the most part, these physicians who are saying this don't really do a deep dive into how is this person's health otherwise, right? So maybe their body weight is high, but maybe they don't have high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes. Maybe they're super physically active and actually they're in really good shape. And you are just looking at 
the weight and that what you see in front of you, their size and, you know, telling them that they, they need to lose weight. So I don't think that outside the field of medical weight management, people really take into account the overall health of a person. And I also think that when they say that, it can be insulting and discouraging and doesn't take into account the effect um, that that comment will have also on the mental health of those patients. Yeah, it definitely makes me feel like even if they're not saying to me, you are less than, it, it, it does feel that way. You know, I'm sure they don't mean it to feel that way. But I mean, how could it not? And, you know, honestly, I know, I know quite a few people who purposely avoid going to doctors as much as they possibly can, because they are so tired of being told that everything that they're experiencing is just because they're too fat and they just need to lose weight. It kills people. Yep. And, you know, I'm I'm an obese woman. And, you know, certainly going to a new doctor is just a terrifying moment because you don't know who's going to treat you kindly and, and who is not. So certainly yep. something I very strongly identify with. You know, one question I have that sort of connects to stigma is that, you know, Jody, as you point out, the shortage of these GLP-1s means that people who need the medications because of existing problems are having difficulty accessing it. But at the same time, the sort of cultural explosion also seems to be prompting some people who may want it largely for cosmetic reasons or may be perfectly healthy but have sort of internalized messaging around weight are making the shortage worse. Can you talk a little bit about that interplay? I mean, is it frustrating for you? For me in my practice, I I really can't think of, I don't know, maybe one. I could think of one patient who has actually said to me, I want to lose a few pounds for this, right? And like fill in the blank. Um, I mean, it was for a wedding. That's, you know, very common. But for the most part, I the patients who come to see me are seeking help with weight loss for medical reasons. So I, and I don't know whether or not, I don't know how much uh, of this prescribing to people who are already lean or a little bit overweight. I don't, I don't know how much that's happening um, because my patient population is, you know, entirely skewed against that. So um, I, I, I don't think that that's happening in academic medical centers. Uh, I think that it's happening in other places. I think it's happening. I mean, certainly I've heard patients say to me um, that they know people who are getting this. So say during the shortage, people who I'm treating um, can't get it. And so they say, you know, I know people going to these medi spas and you give them your credit card and you can get whatever you want. Or there are some medical practices where you pay a subscription fee and they seem to have supply as well. So, um, but I don't, I don't see any. Or online pharmacies. Yeah. Our, our, our colleagues at STAT have written about the online prescriptions, which seem to be huge here. Yes. And then this very questionable uh, compounded situation, which is um, really problematic as well. So, but that's not, those aren't the patients who I see. Um, and, so it's hard for me to, to, to know really what is the volume of that, or is it just, you know, one of these things that has become super, it is happening, but it's been exaggerated in terms of the numbers. 
Well, so we only have a few minutes left, but um, Lori, I want to circle back to you and say, sort of, where are you right now? Are, are you st- are you currently using Wagovi? Have you been able to get your surgery to the extent that you're comfortable? Just just like to know how you're doing. Um, let's see. Well, I am still on the Wagovi. Uh, I I have had further response to it. I, I did manage to relose that ten pounds and some more, though. Um, it's it's extraordinarily slow going for me. I I know people who have lost tremendous amounts of of weight very quickly on that, and that isn't happening for me. I don't know if it's because I was on it and then had to stop and then restart, or if it's just that my personal you know, body and situation are working against me or whatever it is. I mean, it could be for any reason, right? Um, but I I tend to sort of bounce up and down the same few pounds for a while. And then I lose a little more. And then I bounce around a couple of pounds up and down. And then if I'm lucky, I get a little more. So I guess I'm down about 15 pounds um, total. Which is great. I mean, I'm happy for that. Um, I would love it to be more, honestly, so that it could be unequivocally like, yes, you have met that target. Surgery for you. Hooray. Um, so I am not there yet. How, however, I did finally get to have uh, a bit of a leap forward in my treatment at the lymphatic center um, in that in September I was finally permitted to undergo uh, three sets of uh, imaging for my arm. And I do actually have finally after, it's been over two years since I first started pursuing this process, um, I will finally have an appointment with the surgeon uh, at the beginning of November. So then we will see what happens. Congratulations. Thank you. It's been a long slog. If the surgery weren't a consideration, do you think you'd still be taking the Wagovi? I don't know. Um, I mean, I had I had been trying to lose weight before that, but like not not in quite so uh, kind of single focusedly uh, a manner. And this is because I was told that. Uh, if I would be able to lose some weight, it would lessen my risk of recurrence because my breast cancer was a hormone positive cancer and fat makes estrogen. So any any weight that I can lose further decreases my risk. And I, I am high risk for recurrence. Um, I had uh, an oncotype score of 41 uh, when when that was tested, uh, it was a high-grade cancer, and it had progressed to eight lymph nodes. Um, so I am very motivated to reduce my risk of recurrence, and I do a lot to try to further that goal. Um, so, I mean, I, I would like to lose more weight, but I'm not sure if it weren't for this, I'm not sure that I would have gone in this direction. I mean, maybe I would have eventually, but I, I definitely picked this because I was focused on the surgery. And Jody, just to wrap up with you, 
What are you hopeful in terms of next steps with these GLP-1s? What do you want to see going forward besides a lack of shortage, of course? What I would love to see actually is related to that other shortage that I mentioned, which is access. I mean, we really need to completely overhaul access to these medications. And so, of course, the manufacturing shortage is part of that equation. But if we take that away, uh, with these, these need to be covered by public insurance. With new data coming out showing additional benefits, cardiovascular benefits, you know, you can make the sound argument that the, on average, the best treatment uh, for medical weight management, the best option out there for weight loss is, are these GLP-1 agonists. And so making them inaccessible to people because they have public insurance, Medicare, Medicaid, MassHealth, and and also many private insurances, you are denying, you could say, um, as a category, gold standard treatments. Um, well, I mean, they, they're not covering weight loss medications, period. So, I mean, so if we just go, you know, to there's that, right? They don't cover weight loss medications, period, period. And um, many insurances don't cover the GLPs. So number one, making no weight loss medications available to people on public insurance is totally insane. And then private insurance companies not covering these medications and having patients have to go through these other either step therapy or um, just, you know, some of the other medications, they'll never get to take GLP once they have to take something else, um, is just really uh, discriminatory in many ways. If you look at, you know, the it's discriminatory to people with obesity as a disease, and it's discriminatory to the to the population of people who have these public ins- have public insurance and some of these private insurances. Jody Duche and Lori Bruner, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to the First Opinion podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Alyssa Ambrose is the senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. Listeners, I want to hear from you. What first opinion columns do you think would make great episodes of the podcast? And what topics should the column be taking on? You can email me at first.opinion at statnews.com. And, you know, help a podcaster out. Please leave a review or rating on whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Tori Bosch, and please don't keep your opinions to yourself. <laughs> <laughs>